0: Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate His love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoyed today's message. All right, we're in the middle of a winter preaching series. I've simply entitled this series, Word Up, encouraging you to upskill yourself in the scriptures over winter and thank God spring is coming. Uh, we're up to the sixth week in our um, schedule here. We're looking at how to interpret the Bible. We've talked about how to read the Bible, how to handle the Bible, how to choose a Bible. Looked at the issue of whole, or the whole issue of Bible translations and which, Bible, uh, or which Bibles we should read. And that was a couple of weeks ago. I think that message is on YouTube now. Well, last week and today, uh, we're going to look at how to interpret the Bible. I explained last week, and we've looked at this a couple of times, there's a simple... Uh, pattern or the simple three step process, because I see everything in threes, right? Simple three step uh, process seen in Nehemiah chapter 8 about how to correctly handle the word of God, something that Paul encourages Timothy to do. Nehemiah, Ezra, and a whole bunch of priests get up, and it says there that they read the scriptures, they translated it, first thing, then they gave the meaning, and then they encouraged the people on how to respond properly. Three steps. They read the Bible in a language that made sense. They then gave the meaning of what they just read. And then they encouraged people, now listen, this is what it means for us today, this is how you should respond. The people at the time, when they understood the meaning of the word, they responded by crying. And Nehemiah got up and said, no, 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 not the right response. (laughs) Somewhere in the process, you've missed something, the implications for us today are joyous. We are to rejoice in the Lord, for the joy of the Lord is your Strength, that's where that famous verse comes in. But like everything, every verse has a context. That's the story. And so do we handle the Bible well? I've said there's basically three questions we need to answer. First of all, what does the Bible say? Secondly, what does it mean? And then thirdly, who cares? What does it matter? Who cares if that's what the Bible says and that's what the Bible means? What does it matter to me today? Uh, Another way to put that is that the Bible gives us information, historical information and our great challenge as students of the Scriptures is to take the historical information or the heavenly inspiration to the place of hands-on application today. That's the great challenge. Chad, why are there so many different churches? Why are there so many different uh, doctrines and divisions and denominations and flows and beliefs and expressions? Well, I'll tell you one of the reasons is this, we all agree that the Bible is God's Word and all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. We all know what the Bible says. But we have come to very different conclusions when it comes to saying, well, this is what it means for us today. This is the implications for us. This is the here and now. Uh, you know, this is how it matters in the current world. And one of the main reasons we come to different conclusions is because of this process. It's our uh, in Bible interpretation process. And one of the critical steps that is often missed by people is this middle step. We know what the Bible says, but before we rush to, well, what do I do about it? We need to stop here in the middle and say, well, hang on, what does it mean? What is the information, how do I take that through interpretation before I then discover the implications for me today, all right? So we're looking at this critical second step in the process, what does the Bible mean? I know Jesus said, forgive people 70 times 7 times, but what did He mean? Did He mean forgive people exactly 490 times? Is that what he meant? Do you walk around with a forgiveness calculator and calculate exactly 409? I thought that's what Jesus said. But what did that mean? And then once I know what that means, oh, he was using a figure of speech to blah, blah, blah. blah. Okay, now I know how that matters to me. When Jesus sat at a, at a dining room table, eating a lamb roast with his mates, and he lifted up a glass of wine, and he says, this is my blood. It is my blood. It is my body. Yes, that is what he said But when he said that, what did he mean? Well, that's why in the Christian world, you have different understandings. Because some people believe he literally meant, that's my body and literally my blood. Okay? Translustubciation for those of you playing at home. And so that particular thing matters things to different people. Well, here's the challenge of doctrinal uh, differences is what does the text mean? And that is something we need to focus on. So I've come up with a little acronym uh, that I simply call the ABCs of biblical interpretation. Four significant things we need to consider as we understand what does the text mean when it says that. We looked at number one last week. The first thing you need to consider is A, the author and audience. Understanding what the Bible means, by saying that, we are saying, what did the author mean? You need to know who it's written from and who it is written to. So, in other words, in the, uh, you know, who, what, where, why and how of contextual considerations, remember this, who's on first? Okay, yeah, see some of the oldies got that. Who's on first. I actually downloaded the, the YouTube clip and it's hilarious and it goes for too long so you can watch it at home. Uh, for those of you who are under the age of 40, go home and Google Abbott and Casillo, who's on first and do yourself a favour. Okay, so we need to ask ourselves who's on first? Who's speaking and who are they speaking to? Because while every word in here is the Word of God, is given to us by God for a reason, not all the words spoken in here are God's words if I open up to my Bible randomly and put my finger in there and it ends up somewhere in Job, it is highly likely I'm about to read something that's wrong. Now, it's recorded right, but the advice that's given is wrong advice because most of the book of Job is bad advice given by people that didn't know God. Okay? So you don't just go, well, there you go. That's what the Bible says. No, no, no. Who's speaking? Okay? Who's doing the talking? And secondly, who are they speaking to? And we looked at a little bit of that last week. I said, generally speaking, as a general rule, the closer that you are to the original audience means it is more likely that direct application will result okay? The, the further removed you are from the audience who've spoken like Leviticus and books like that, the least likely it is that you'll be able to find direct implications and applications for you today. You have to dig a little deeper, look a little harder to work out that step. And so we looked at author and audience last week and specifically I looked at the covenantal audiences that there are in the Bible and I won't repeat that today. But that leads us on to our second point in the ABCs of interpretive considerations. A is author and audience, B is this, we need to consider the big picture background, the big picture background of the Bible's meta-narrative. If you are reading something in the Scripture, it is like a puzzle piece that is beautiful, that was designed by a master creator, but that puzzle piece fits in a big picture. And if you want to understand where that character, that story, that teaching, that instruction to give it context, you need to step back from time to time and have a look at the big picture. Know what you're reading and where it fits in the big picture story because those who don't have a big picture perspective tend to get lost in the detail. How many of you heard the phrase, they can't see the forest because of the... Everywhere you look, there's a tree, 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 I'm just lost, I'm just consumed with trees. No, 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 rise above, big picture perspective, I can see the big picture, I know how to get my way out of this forest, okay? And some students of the Scripture get so preoccupied with detail, losing sight of the big picture, that they come up with quite warped perspectives. Now, that's not to say that every detail of the Bible is not important, it is. Um, The King James says that every jot and tittle is inspired, come on King James, every jot and tittle, that means every little detail matters and that's actually the C in ABCs where we compare the content, okay, we, we can zoom in at times but I'm not asking you to zoom in yet, I'm asking you to zoom out and consider the Bible's big picture backdrop and background, okay? I want to show you something, put up this photo Pete, this gentleman here. Uh, in the 2012 London Olympics, was uh, one of the standout sportsmen uh, in that, of, in that uh, Olympic Games. He was actually an Englishman, uh, ran for the Olympic uh, team for the English side. Uh, and in 2012, he won the 10,000 metre and the 5,000 metre races. His name is Mo Farah. And one of the things that made him so famous or so popular after the Olympics is the expressions on his face when he crossed the line. He is very dramatic uh, and, uh, and it, it was just like these priceless moments like this when he crosses the line and realises that he's in front and he has won yet another gold medal. Now, when you look at that photo, it's pretty obvious what we're looking at there. We're looking at an athlete okay, running as part of a race, there's men. It's obviously a male race. Uh, it's uh, there's, there's people in the background. You can see there the concourse that is running on. Okay, you understand the context. That foreground image has a backdrop that helps you understand the context. You know what that photo means, don't you? It's pretty obvious. He's crossing the line. He's winning a race, and he's pretty darn happy with himself. But what happened? in 2012, his people so loved his expression that a little fad emerged, a little meme-making fad on the internet, where people would Photoshop this image onto different backdrops. Here's one of them. (laughs) So here he is running from a whole bunch of brides running after him. Now, suddenly if you were to ask the question, what does this photo mean? Why is this guy running like that? It gives a whole different meaning as to why he's running, doesn't it? What's the next one? Uh, yeah, okay, here he is running from a, uh, a car crash. Next one. Uh, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, you can understand that, running away from the bulls. What's the next shot there? Uh, okay, well, we'd all run away from T-Rex, wouldn't we? And what, what about the next one? Lion King. Okay, stampede uh, through the Lion King. And the last one here is, well, <laughs> running away from the... T- they are freaky, those Teletubbies. You can completely understand that expression on his face, uh, running away from Teletubbies. Here's the idea: the foreground information didn't change. It's pretty obvious what the foreground information is, but you will misinterpret the meaning of his expression by changing the backdrop. If you don't understand the backdrop and the background, it gives you the context as to why he is expressing that exhilaration. You must see see things in their original context and compare. uh, Sorry, have an idea of the big picture, okay? So again, when you're putting a puzzle pieces together, you don't just focus on your one little piece. If you want to know where that fits, you've got to return to the artist's original picture, the big story, and go, aha, that's what I'm creating, that's where my piece goes. Today, I want to do something quite ambitious. I want to walk you through the Bible story and uh, from cover to cover, (laughs) highlighting seven distinct eras of time in the Scripture. You see, your Bible is an incredible book, it really is remarkable. But one of the reasons that many of us struggle to read it and many of us struggle to see the big picture is because it's not ordered in a chronological way. Most of the books of the Bible are ordered according to their genre or ordered according to the author that originally wrote it and so it kind of has a disjointed feel to it many people struggle to see the big picture or know where pieces fit because generally when you approach a story or when you approach a history book you anticipate a linear you know start to finish presentation the bible doesn't give us that okay it doesn't give us that so it appears a little bit disjointed i want to help explain something of the big story and help you see where your bible books fit all right let's have a look at this your bible the word bible comes from the latin term biblia and it simply means a collection of scrolls. That's what the word Bible is. It's a collection of scrolls. Our Bible contains 66 books written by over 40 authors, written over a period of 15 hundred years, spanning a period of history at the very least, two and a half to three thousand years from Abraham's ancestors through to Jesus in the New Testament. It is written in three languages, none of which you speak. It is written over three continents. It is written in multiple genres, multiple purposes and multiple audiences over that period of time. But the Bible is one book with one story, one progressive narrative of God's dealing with His covenant people of God's dealing with His people over time as history moves on. If you were to put the books of the Bible on a bookshelf, it would look something like this, 66 books with different genres ordered in such a way that is not necessarily linear, but grouped according to their type. Here's the story. The start of your Bible, from Genesis 1 to 11, is what I call the Age of the Ancients this first main stage or phase in the biblical story. We have here the stories of Adam and Eve. We have here the stories of Noah. We have Enoch who walked with God and then was no more. We have the story of Cain and Abel where the younger brother who was favoured is persecuted by the older. We have these ancient stories. And there's many discussions about how we're supposed to understand those stories. But here's one definite thing we know. Each of those stories are not just origin stories, they are prophetic stories. Our God, Isaiah says, is He who knows the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, He says what is still to come. And so when you read the story of Babel, Babylon, when you read the story of Adam and Eve and their ejection from the promised land, when you read the story of Cain and Abel, when you read the story of Noah, these stories serve as prophetic precursors to what's about going to happen in the future. And so as you keep reading the Bible, a lot of these prophets and eventually the apostles keep pointing back to those origin stories and say, this what is happening now is like a fulfillment of that. So these are foundational stories that are not just origin stories, they are prophetic stories. Our God knows the end and He knew it right back at the beginning which is why if you read the first opening chapters of Genesis, and then you read the closing chapters of Revelation, they contain a lot of the same stuff. One book telling one story with a beautiful symmetry about it. We have the story of ancients, individuals that walked with God. And what's interesting in that period of time is there doesn't seem to be a strong indication that the faith of those men and women was passed on to their children. God didn't really, in a sense, have a covenant family. Enoch walked with God and then it was generations later until we're told about that next guy who walked with God. Okay, it's like the, this is a story of these heroes, these individuals that walked with God. These are the stories of the ancients. And that term I get from Peter, when Peter talks about the flood and he said, God destroyed the ancient world. It's an ancient era, Genesis 1 to 11, Adam to Abram. The next lot of Genesis is chapters 12 through to 50. And this is what I call the age of the patriarchs. Here in this era, this is where you read the stories of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And a shift takes place from just individuals walking with God, with God making a promise to a family. Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your descendants and your family are going to be my people. You will be my covenant family. And so you read those stories, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The next phase is the age of the judges. The first national judge of God's people is a guy called Moses, a national leader who's a prophetic man and a military leader who is God calls for a particular time for a particular purpose. He hands over to Joshua, Joshua hands over, well not really, after him come a series of 12 judges in the book of Judges and ultimately the last judge is a guy called Samuel. So from Moses through to Samuel, in all of those books there, Exodus All the way through to 1 Samuel, we have the era of the Judges. God's people are now not just a family, they are a nation. Okay? So we have individuals who walk with God, become a family that walks with God, now becomes a nation that is walking with God with its own law, its own calendar, its own rituals, its own civic rules, its own identity in the ancient Near East. It is God's nation and they are led by Judges. Samuel is the last of those judges and he makes a really strange decision one day. He says, listen, I'm going to appoint my sons to lead when I die. And he's the only judge to ever do that. The people don't like his sons and they reject them because they're a bunch of dingbats, right? But they get an idea. They go, hang on, this is a great idea. Why don't we have a system where the current leader hands over to his son that'd be awesome. Then we never have to trust God to give us a leader when we need one, the system will look after us. We will already know who the next leader is, we don't have to cry out to God to give us the next leader, no, 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 it'll be the biological son and the, the, uh, we'll set up an institutional system where the system will look after us and give us the leaders that we need. Let's have a monarchy. So God's people ask for a king. They ask for a monarchy and in doing so they're basically saying, God we don't trust you anymore to give us the right leader, we'll let the system look after us instead. Okay, the system's going to look after us, not the spirit. And so we enter into the era of the United Kingdom, all right? This period goes for about 120 years, the first king is Saul, followed by David, followed by Solomon, King Solomon, okay? And this era here, is basically when you're reading Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st Chronicles and this is when the Bible gets a bit out of whack because it's in this era that a lot of the Psalms are written and Solomon's Proverbs are written, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, the Book of Job most people think is written in this uh, era of the United Kingdom and this became known, the United Kingdom, <laughs> the Unified Kingdom, I don't want to uh, confuse you, and this became known as the golden years of Israel. This is our peak season. This is when our nation was awesome. We'd been a family. We'd been a nation. Now we're a kingdom and God's blessing was on us. We had this massive temple. Things were going great. The whole world in our area knew about us and we had David on the throne. My goodness, those were the glory days. Goes for 120 years. When Solomon dies, something happens and the kingdom is split into two. This is a pivotal moment in the history of God's people. It goes from being a unified kingdom to a divided kingdom. And 10 of the 13 tribes stay up north and they say, we don't want to have anything to do with David. Stuffed a lot of you. We don't want to have anything to do with Jerusalem. We don't want to have anything to do with the temple down there. We're going to do our own thing and make our own kingdom. Now, because they're the majority, they're 10 tribes, they keep being called Israel. Whereas the guys down south in Jerusalem keep being called Judah. Judah, Benjamin and Levi, they're actually all down there, but Judah's the main one, okay? And this is where your Bible gets really confusing because it's here in Kings and Second Chronicles and through most of the prophets. These are the prophetic books down the bottom, 16 of them, and all except three are written in this period of the divided kingdom. And sometimes the prophets are talking to the people of Judah, Sometimes they're talking to the people of Israel. Sometimes they're talking to both, okay? And this is why when you read Kings and Chronicles, you read about the king in this area. Then he was the king in this area. Then when he died, this guy became king and the king in this area was doing this, all right? Israel, Judah, Israel, Judah. It's this real kind of, what the heck is going on story? Well, i tell you what's going on. The kingdom had split and it's entered into this era where God's people have been from becoming a family to a nation, to a kingdom, we're now a divided kingdom. And this area, is this time is a real tumultuous time in God's people. Eventually, after about 200 years and 19 kings, the northern kingdom, the people of Israel, were destroyed. Uh, a, a nation called Assyria or empire called Assyria took them out and uh, basically they're destroyed. Meanwhile, the guys in the south, God says to them, a similar thing's going to happen to you. Same, same, but different. It'll be same, same, because another empire is going to come in and take you out. But it'll be different because I'm going to make sure that you can always trace your ancestry because one day I'm going to have a king come from David's line. Okay, a king's going to come from this line. I'm going to be faithful to David. And so the tribe of Judah is always going, uh, is going to keep going. And so you guys aren't going to be entirely annihilated. Instead, you're going to go off to Babylon and you're going to be deported. All right. So this period of the divided kingdom takes us from the division when the kingdom split into two to the deportation of people in Babylon. This is where most of your Old Testament is and when most of the prophets come in. Got it? The next phase is what I call the age of Second Temple Judaism. Okay? What's interesting is the word Israelite first begins to be used when the people become a nation. They are now Israelites. But the word Jew first becomes used in this period of time, in the second temple uh, period. And the reason for that is Jew means men of Judah. Okay? So Israel's taken out, the men of Judah survive, and they become known as Judahites. Okay? Or Jews. Okay? So now in your Bible, God's people are suddenly called Jews. That they haven't been before, but now they are. So that word begins to be used, and this is the age where they restore the temple. You've got Ezra and Nehemiah covers a period of about hundred years, okay. And the last three prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, prophesy. Prophesy. It's such an old joke, Chad. Just get over it. Uh, prophesy during that time, and that's where your Old Testament Hebrew Bible essentially comes to a close. I've said this before, but one of the significant things that happens in this period of history is that when they build the temple, God's glory doesn't come. When Moses built the tabernacle, God's glory came. Wow! When Solomon built David's temple, wow, God's glory came. That's my house. When Zerubbabel builds this temple, they have a celebration and go home. God's glory doesn't come, because here in the prophets, in Ezekiel, God had said, Ichabod, or, hey, I hadn't actually said that, He said, my glory has departed, okay, but one day I will return to my temple, but not yet. The, the, the glory of God was going to come, the king of Judah was going to come, a new covenant was going to come but not yet. This restoration period in Ezra and Nehemiah is a real anticlimax to the Old Testament because all they do is restore the kingdom physically, but they do not yet have a spiritual reformation that all the prophets had promised was going to come to them. Okay, And so the, 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 the Old Testament begins on a bit of a downer, like uh, there's all this stuff that was meant to happen that hasn't happened yet. When is that going to happen? When's our king going to come? When's his glory going to return to the temple? When are we going to be united again under King David? Because the prophet said that King David was going to return, return of the king. 400 years passes after Ezra and Nehemiah and then angels appear and say, we have good news of great joy, because a Saviour's been born to you. We now step into the period of our New Testament Scriptures, which I like to call the era of fulfilment, the age of fulfilment. Because from Matthew chapter 1, over and over again it says, this happened to fulfil what this prophet said. This happened to fulfil what this prophet prophet said. And then this happened to fulfill what this prophet said. And then Jesus himself gets up and says, I have come to fulfill everything the prophet said, everything that was written in the Psalms and everything the law said. I've come to bring fulfillment to that. All right. And so the age of fulfillment began. And so we have this beautiful picture where things begin to be fulfilled. God's prophetic promises are being fulfilled in and through the work of Of Jesus to the point where you get right to the end of the book okay and many of those prophetic pictures as a great city called Babylon comes down it's a prophetic fulfillment of the Babylon in the early pages as the older brother persecuted Cain Persecuted the younger brother, Abel. So here in the New Testament, we have the old covenant community persecuting the new covenant community. A fulfillment of that very picture. We have fulfillments and fulfillments taking place. And the Bible has this incredible symmetry. We are living in the age of fulfillment where God's restorative promises are coming about. Okay, so this is the New Testament this is where our New Testament Scriptures come in. So there's these ages as you read. You just don't pick a book of the Bible. Well, Actually, this is what I do want you to do. If you're not reading anything, if you're not intentionally reading something in your Bible at the moment, I do want to give you homework. I want you to go and pick one of these 66 books. Pick a puzzle piece and go, I'm going to read that book. But before you do, stand back. Where does that puzzle piece fit in the big story. Because I promise you if, you, if you pick up Isaiah and read Isaiah, there's going to be a lot of back and forthing. If one minute he's talking to Judah, the next minute he's talking to Israel. Is there a difference? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. How can Hosea say that Israel are destroyed and then another prophet comes along, is prophesying to God's people, aren't they destroyed? No, that's the split kingdom situation. Understand, you need to see the big picture where your piece of the puzzle fits and hopefully that gives you a better idea of what's going on amen b appreciate the bible's big picture background and that's why last year i put a lot of work into reading through the bible in a year and doing weekly tutorials to help people see the chronology of the bible unfold they're always on YouTube. You can watch them at any time and I really trust that helps you. I'm going to finish with C and give it a couple of examples here that are going to be fun and then uh, we'll call it a day. The ABCs of interpreting the Bible are these. A, you need to consider the author and audience. B, if you're reading the Bible, what the heck, where does the heck does this fit in? You need to step back and consider the Bible's Big picture, the meta-narrative. Meta-narrative doesn't start with a B, but yeah, that's exactly right. The meta-narrative, the big picture backdrop, okay? Where does this fit in the big picture scheme of things? C is this. You need to consider corroborating content. Corroborating content. You need to compare content before coming to a conclusion. If you want to clarify, is that what the Bible means? You need to use the Bible to interpret itself Okay, We use the Bible to interpret itself. The Bible is its best interpreter. And while there is a lot of variety in the Scriptures, we serve a God who does not speak with a forked tongue. Truth is consistent. And while, yes, He may say certain things to an audience here and then say something different to an audience here, He's not contradicting Himself when you understand the big picture, but you need to make sure that you're not reading an instruction and then run to a conclusion without clarifying it with the rest of the Bible. Otherwise, in our history as a church, we've had certain people come and call this church their home, have come out of Christian sects, S-E-C-T-S, or <laughs> cults. Okay, And one of them, a uh, fairly well-known one, is a group that their main thing is Acts chapter 2, where Peter gets up at Pentecost and says repent be baptized you receive the holy spirit and you'll be saved okay and these people told us almost every sunday that scripture comes up for them in order to inherit eternal life you must speak in tongues and you must be water baptized because after all that verse says repent be baptized you'll receive the holy spirit equals tongues and you will be saved and whole—that that is one of the major thrusts of their whole movement. Now what have they done? They've taken one scripture which says you must be water baptised in order to be saved, and they haven't compared it, they haven't correlated it with the whole rest of the other body of teaching in the New Testament which says it is only believing in Jesus that gets you saved. Water baptism is a an expression of obedience to that belief, okay? Water baptism does not get you saved, it's a a sign and a symbol, an expression afterwards of what you've done now that you are saved. But if you just take one verse, if you just take half a verse, you can make the Bible say almost anything, okay? We need to compare, as you look at the ABCs of interpretation, compare your content and corroborate. And there's this there's this biblical principle that starts way back with Moses, as most of them do, and Jesus and Paul even adopt it, where he says, you need to have the witnesses of two or three reliable sources before you reach a conclusion. Wow. Okay? Now, this is a radical idea, three and a half thousand years ago, because three and a half thousand years ago, if you were a king, and you, and, or you are a village chief, or whatever, and you had a, someone who was accused of a crime, or you just didn't like him, you just execute the guy off with his head i'm the king i'm the chief off with his head moses comes along and establishes the law and says listen we believe that crime should be punished but serious crimes will not be punished unless there are two or three reliable witnesses wow. not just going to go off on a simple accusation we need to establish this as a truth moses god was revealing to moses there is such a thing as objective truth an ejected truth can be substantiated. And, and see, you and I in the Western world, we take that for granted. This is one of the things that why we say that the Western world is based on a Judeo-Christian ethic. This is one of them. A radical idea that truth is objective and not in the, the eye of the beholder, who's the chief or the king in charge. Truth is objective and it can be evidence, it can be tested. Okay? Science came out of that understanding. The testing of scientific method, technology, advancing... Okay, all that, all that stuff that we in the West enjoy came from this foundational belief that God said to Moses, establish truth with two or three witnesses. Corroborate your evidence before reaching a conclusion. Too much for one day? Too much philosophy? Okay, fine. Let's go. He said two or three witnesses. Now, Paul and Jesus say the same thing. They take that principle and they apply it to various aspects of Christian life. I encourage you to do the same. Don't just read one verse and come to a conclusion on a major issue, unless you establish that with two or three confirming verses. Paul says, to Timothy somewhere, women should not teach, should not speak. It's in the Bible, Done. Now you can take that one verse and you can just draw a big conclusion out of that. In the church, women, shh, don't even, even those of you who laughed, that was like stepping over the line. No speaking, no teaching. You've got to read that verse and you go, hang on, let me compare that. Stand back and let me compare that with other scriptures. Does that mean that every single woman throughout all history? As a general rule for all time, in any church context, must never speak or teach. Is that what he means? Well, it can't be if in Corinthians he talks about women prophesying. That's speaking. Praying, that's speaking. He talks about Priscilla and Aquila in the book of Acts, who trained Apollos. Priscilla taught Apollos the gospel properly. Paul knew about that. Paul had female leaders on his leadership team. He says, commend Phoebe, a deacon. Commend that this apostle, a female apostle who's been helpful to me in my work. Commend that lady who has a church in her home. So you've got all this other content. You cannot draw a broad conclusion from that one verse unless you compare, unless it's the consistent teaching of the Scriptures. Okay? We need to compare our content. When Paul said, I had a thorn in the flesh given to me, you don't need to argue and debate and try to work out what that thorn in the flesh was. All you need to do is compare that phrase with the four other times it's used in the Bible. Paul did not come up with the phrase thorn in the flesh. He didn't invent that. You don't have to speculate as to what that meant. At least four, th- two, three or four other times in the Old Testament, thorn in the flesh is used of human beings who would antagonise God's people. Joshua Deuteronomy, Judges, and I think Ezekiel, all use that phrase talking about people who hinder the advancing of God's people. So thorn in the flesh was not a physical illness or a disease, or a, it was actually people that were trying to get in Paul's way. When Paul says to the Galatians, I came to you with a physical ailment and you would have ripped your eyes out to me, you loved me so much. We don't have to speculate as to what that ailment was. Did Paul have conjunctivitis? Did he have some type of weird eye disease? No, no, no. You just compare your content. Look in the book of Acts, when he went to Galatia and you'll notice that he was stoned almost to death, rocks thrown at his head, rocks thrown at his face and then he stumbled into Galatia with little to no first aid and began to preach. What was wrong with his face? What was wrong with his eyes? He'd been hit in the head with rocks. (laughs) That's what his ailment was. All you need to do is compare your content before reaching conclusions. So this is where you can zoom in On the scripture, and you go, What does that phrase mean? Let me compare where else it's being used. What could that teaching mean? Let me compare other places where that topic is talked about. Ooh, water baptism. You have to be baptized to be saved. Well, hang on. Let me compare other scriptures about salvation or other scriptures about water baptism. Amen? And one of my favorites, maybe I'll close with this because I want to close on a good note. Are you okay? Are you with me? John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine and you are the branches. He says, every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, He says, I will cut off those who are fruitful, I'll prune. He says, you are the vine, I am the branches. And many translations Use that phrase, if you are a branch connected into Jesus and you're not fruitful, the Scripture says you will be cut off. But if you zoom in a little closer, you realise that that word for cut off can be translated another way. Zoom in and compare where that word, and this is where your electronic Bible comes in really helpful. Remember I said you need four Bibles? Something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. And your blue one is where you have hyperlinks. You can click on a word and see where else it is used. That word for cut off can also mean lift up. When Jesus fed the 5,000, it says they lifted up the baskets off the ground. When the guy fell from the second floor while Paul was preaching, he died. Paul got got laid on him, raised him from the dead, and it says they picked him up. It's the same word. It can mean cut off or it can mean pick up, okay? Just like the word trunk can mean different things. If you're talking about an elephant, what does a trunk mean? If you're talking about a car, what does a trunk mean? Okay, if you're talking about bathers, what does a trunk mean? Okay, if you're talking about a tree, the same word can mean something else. So while some people believe, as you zoom in on that word, say, what does that word mean? Some people believe it means cut off which means that if you are in Jesus and you are not producing fruit, He'll cut you off. Or, could it mean, if you are in Jesus and you are not producing fruit, He will lift you up. And that's what some translations like the Passion Bible, that's how they interpret that, because it's the same word, just has different meanings. Because if you go down to McLaren Vale and you have a beautiful vine and all the branches are producing fruit except one, You don't go and you don't cut that thing off. A good gardener comes along and he realises, you know what's the matter with this branch? It's not getting enough sun. So I'm not going to cut it off and kill it. I'm going to prop it up. I'm going to give it a hand. I'm going to point it towards the sun. And as it sees more of the sunlight, that thing will produce fruit. So sometimes you need to take a step back and see the big picture Sometimes when you come across something you're unsure of, you need to zoom right in and you need to go, hang on, before I reach a conclusion, before I read a verse that seems to say, if I'm not fruitful enough, Jesus is going to cut me out of himself. Does that line up with the whole rest of the teaching of the gospel in the New Testament? Or could that same word, it was what Jesus meant, meant was, I'm going to lift you up and let you see the sun. Hey, don't reach conclusions, especially on significant matters, unless you corroborate your content. Clarify it by comparing with the rest of the Bible, okay? The Scripture interprets Scripture. I know that's what it says, but what does it mean? Author and audience, big picture background, corroborate your content. And the last one I might save till next week. Before we then can work out, ah, now I know what it means. How does that matter to me? What does that mean for me today? And maybe what's that, that's, that last illustration was just what some of you need to hear today. Maybe some of you, you're going to forget all about the seven ages of the ancients through to fulfillment. Too much for one day. Maybe some of you just needed to hear that you didn't know, you know what? I've read things in the Bible. I thought I knew what they meant. And like the people in Nehemiah, it's kind of made me freak out. It's kind of made me weep. It's kind of made me go, oh no, God, how can you be so angry with us? And I'm here today to help you. And you've got a community of people around you to help you to say, listen, you can find the joy in the Scriptures because the Scriptures on this side of the cross It is good news for us. It is good news for us. You just need to make sure that you're seeing the information with the proper backdrop and background so you know what it really is saying. Amen? It is a privilege to have this Bible. And it is, God, Jesus said, my words are spirit and life. And that's what I hope more and more you experience as you read the Bible.